people of Adland. Do you know how many listeners you can reach by advertising on a Muddy Knees Media podcast? Loads! Every single episode of Galazzo alone is listened to by nearly 100,000 of those hard-to-reach 25 to 44-year-old men. But we do plenty more shows than that now. We've got The Offside Rule with Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen. We've got The Offside Rule WSL Edition, the UK's premier women's football podcast. We've got Series Linked, a podcast that's dripping with celebrities. And then there's the rest of the Totally Football Network, which includes the very lovely thetotallyfootballshow.com. If you'd like to talk about advertising with Muddy Knees Media, drop us a line on sales at muddykneesmedia.com. That's sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And listeners, don't keep the show to yourself. Leave us a review, rate us, share it with your friends, and subscribe wherever you listen to the rest of your podcasts and never miss an episode. Today, turning up the treble with the remarkable story of Inter's tripletta, 2009-2010. We all know how it ends, but how, via a volcano, some moody Mourinho magic and a missing whistle or two, did Inter become the first Italian side to nail the European treble? Find out in this Golazzo. Inter, Pazza Inter, the self-confessed craziest club in Calcio, as their own anthem has it, or indeed had it until they decided to ditch the crazy bit uh, a short time ago. Also, as I mentioned, the only Italian side ever to win the European treble on the 5th, 16th and 22nd of May 2010, bringing home the Scudetto, the Coppa Italia, and then the big one, the Cup with the Ears. Here's James Horngartel. Hello, James. And here's Gabriele Marcotti. Hi, up. 2010, Gab. The stars aligning. Inter's centenary season. Not just the stars, the volcanic ash as well. Mm. And I'm sure, and I'm sure we'll get to that. It was absolutely remarkable because I think it was a coming together of so many different things. And I don't know how you feel about this, James. But in the summer, to me, it didn't feel at all like things were the way they should be. No, even though looking back into had a quite remarkable transfer window, you think of that Eto Ibrahimovic swap, um, you think of Schneider, Lucio, Milito. But that's the thing, Schneider. Mm. Schneider, who arrives right at the end of the summer. This always gets me is club's plan, everything, you know, world planning, Branca, Mourinho knows exactly what he wants. And the Ritiro starts before the season. I think the season might have even started. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden. Second week. Yeah. They're realizing, wait a minute, there's absolutely nobody. I mean, it was bad enough last year when the only people who could actually play were Slatan and Mykon. And I seen play, like, create something, mm. you know, whatever. But now Slatan's gone, and there's nobody who can create. Zero. And all of a sudden, they turn to the unhappy, but lovable, likable Dutchman who retired, I think just last month, Wesley Snyder, who's told at Real Madrid that, yeah, you had a good season, but you know what? We don't want you. We've signed other people. I mean, what you're forgetting is this is down in history as the Arnautovic treble. (laughs) (laughs) It's down in history so much, but let's begin by returning to those sultry summer nights of August 2009. That's right, it's the start of Il Campionato, 2009-2010. Uh, 
into the champions under their new manager, Jose Mourinho, the previous year. Uh, hadn't done too well in Europe, of course. You remember they came up against Man United in the quarters. They went out without managing to score a single goal. And this new Serie A campaign, which was starting off at San Siro against Bari, didn't look too promising either. Dentro, splendid, ancora il suggerimento per Bari! Kutuzov, 1-1. A 1-1 draw in front of a crowd disgruntled by the sale of Inter's totemic figure, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who Barcelona had taken away, giving Inter in exchange only this Samueletto guy and uh, 50 million euros. Con locchio di poi, as they say. In hindsight, one of the most extraordinary bits of transfer business ever. I suppose something that we didn't expect from Inter as well, because, again, the remarkable thing about that transfer window is, yes, in hindsight, it looks like they nailed everything because pretty much did transform the team um, that summer. And, yeah, this is a recruitment squad in Marco Branca and Pierre Auxilio still there, who I don't think had done a lot to gain our confidence, really, and would subsequently mess up. And I think part of Mourinho's mythology here is that he had a big say in recruitment. It was him who was calling these players, saying, I can persuade them to come and all that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, it's the outlier, I suppose, in a lot of inter, inter windows. This is obviously part of the of the Mourinho mythology, right? If you speak to Mourinho loyalists, or indeed if you listen to him talk, all these wonderful players that, that they added, you know, Lucio at the back and, and Thiago Milito. Thiago came in. Thiago Motta midfield. It was all down to him. He identified the needs, blah, 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 and then he made them by Snyder. That's the Mourinho version of events. The story that other people at the club tell is they did the deal for Milito and Thiago Motta like months earlier. Mourinho wanted to bring in Ricardo Carvalho at the back and was totally opposed to, to Lucio. And then they ended up with Lucio because they couldn't work a deal for Carvalho. Mourinho, for a long time, wanted Lampard. And then, obviously, he, he didn't come. Right? <laughs> <Got> <laughs> Close enough. Um, and, obviously, the Eto'o deal was uniquely down to the fact that Slatan Wanted to go. Yeah, Slatan and Mino. And Slatan and Mino generally get what they want, when they want. Barcelona, obviously, can't pay for him. They don't put a number on him. You had Eto'o who... People looked at the fact that whether it's 50 million or they say 40 million plus it's all, you know, why was it so cheap? Because he was still Samuel Eto'o uh, and he was coming off a good season as well mm. at Barcelona. And, but he, of course, he hadn't signed his new contract because Eto'o felt slighted by the fact that, you know, he was making substantially less money than Barcelona's other stars. So they end up with Eto'o. Basically, none of these things had much to do with Mourinho at all. But to his credit, and you have to give Mourinho credit sometimes, he found a way to balance everything. In his original mind, it was going to be it's all with Milito up front. Right. And then once they added Wesley Snyder, they realized, wait a minute, Wesley doesn't really run. He doesn't play that often. Samu, you got to go play on the wing. Right. And Milito's going to be up front. So as you say, Snyder arrives right at the end of the transfer window. It's after that 1-1 draw with Barty. And it's in that weird time where Real Madrid every summer seemed to pick a a really great midfielder and go, actually, we don't need you anymore. So Well, this really blew up in their faces because the final, which we'll get to, is played between Schneider's Inter and Arjen Robben's Bayern and both left Real Madrid that summer. To be fair to Real Madrid, we should also <laughs> mention that who they signed that summer. That was a summer that Real Madrid went crazy and they signed Cristiano Ronaldo Kaka. and Kaká and Xabi Alonso and right. Karim Benzema and Alvaro Arbeloa. 
Uh, okay. But having added so much, they had yeah. to go and shed players, and these guys were shown the door. And they weren't happy, and to their credit, both Robin and Snyder and Inter and later in Turkey mm. really relaunched their careers. But it's interesting how Inter benefited essentially from the transfer largesse of the two Spanish giants. Barca coming in for Ibra did Inter a huge favour, as did the surplus to requirements nature now of, of Snyder, who slots straight in. Mourinho puts him straight in as a number 10. And his first game is the derby with Milan and Inter win 4-0. Hello, looks like something might be happening here. You've got an extraordinary squad who somehow Branker has either inherited or, or helped assemble. The likes of Zanetti, of course, Julio Cesar at the back, Stankovic, Maicon you mentioned, Walter Samuel, Cordoba, Matrix. And look, Inter that season also had a whole bunch of good fortune go their way. But let's not forget as well, the year before, obviously you mentioned Inter won the title the year before. Mm. The record books show that they'd won the title the previous four years. Obviously we know what happened, 2005 <laughs> they were handed the title. Two years after that, they won it with Mancini, but everybody else was, was still down and Juventus were coming back up or whatever. The year before, I think I probably saw, all right, it's not, it's not the most horrible Inter team that I remember because I remember Mazzari's Inter and, and other things too, Hodgson's Inter sometimes. But it was the worst good Inter. Inter won the league in 2008-09, where the entire game plan consisted of lump the ball to Slatan or let Maicon run with it until he loses it or gives it to Slatan. You know, either way. It was almost as if Mourinho had made such a big deal when he came to Italy about how, you know, oh, well, you know, tactically it doesn't get any better than this and... You know, I'm going to show that I'm good enough. And so all that mattered to him was winning. He did nothing to really set the base for anything, nothing for, for the squad to develop. Then he loses Slatan. And so I thought, all right, you know, this is where you get exposed. But again, to his credit, mm-hmm. and he didn't sign the players, you know, he'll take credit for them and whatever. He got them and he, he, he found a way to make it work. So what is the team that he fashions then, James? Is defensive discipline, huge tactical versatility on the part of the players, and a wonderful fast break. Yeah, I think they still look to Maicon um, to take them up the pitch, get them out of trouble. Um, they had Thiago Motu, I think a lot of people had written off um, when he left Barcelona and had resurrected his career at Genoa as not a complete midfielder, but someone who could dictate tempo, get a passing game going, um, and would subsequently become really important, not only for Inter, but for the national team. Um, and then Milito as well, who joined from Genoa, uh, with Bonucci going the other way, famously. And Milito, I would say, is... I'm not going to call him underrated, but in terms of the, the goals he scored throughout his career, the big games he delivered in, um, his ability to play on the shoulder, he had a kind of short burst of pace. He wasn't a quick player, but he had quite good acceleration, and he was just very efficient scorer in that, you know, he's not like Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment who'll take 15 shots a game and look to score once or twice. He would have four or five shots and he would score and he'd oh, a war he would always hit the target and that combination of him and Eto and Schneider pulling the strings behind made them a, a difficult proposition for, for teams to play against but this is the thing with this interside they are remembered as the we didn't want the ball team yeah. from Barcelona in the Camp Nou which I don't think is entirely fair no but equally the base formation was a 4-2-3-1 which you know whether it's attack and you look on paper and you say, let's not forget, in the first half of the season, as James said, it was Milito followed by a line of Ito, 
Snyder and a young man named Super Mario Balotelli. So if I were Duncan Castles, I'd say, well, wait a minute. You dare you call him defensive? He's playing three center forwards right. plus Snyder. And then the two behind, two out of Cambiaso, Deki Stankovic and, uh, and, and Motta. The Motta, of course, did it the Motta way, so he's injured all the time. But then you look at it, and this is the remarkable thing, and this is Ito, why he's so fantastic, is he got Ito to say, listen, you're going to be on the wing. You're going to have to do all the running and all the defensive work. Tried to do it with a chap on the other side too, Balotelli, thinking it's going to be easy because Balotelli's younger and blah, 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 more energy. Worked to a point, and that's why you saw Balotelli starting to disappear uh, from the team. you have that tantrum against Barcelona, no? which I think marked the end of his time. Yeah. Then, well, no? Goran Pandev yeah. arrived in January. and Goran Pan- himself from Lazio. Another young talent, the mobbing. That's right, yeah. Pandev, who, who only arrived because they had a weird situation where he wouldn't sign a new contract, and so Lotito put him on the on the naughty step. And with Pandev, because you know you could go to a guy like Pandev and say, "Hey, Pandev, listen, this is Inter, and you're Goran Pandev. You're just going to sit and defend." And that's what he did. And between him and Ito, it gave enough cover so that Snyder could kind of do what Snyder did. But even then, I think Snyder only played like 25 league games or something that mm. year. You know, there's this idea that Snyder Snyder was there in big moments. But he was often in and out of the side. And right. often when he was out, they would add a third central midfielder. Right. So many players stand out from that season. As you mentioned, though, Milito. It's hard to think of anyone I more mean, key. His goals. The Coppa Italia win, that was his goals. The game which won them, the Scudetto, his goal. Two in the Champions League final. And then the final, a brace from him. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he didn't make the Ballon d'Or shortlist. The thing with Eto is that when Benitez ended up replacing Mourinho and doing the kind of cloth to Revy, we can win better than you did. He obviously thought that Eto was going to put the same shift in and, and be a fullback again. And Eto was like, oh, no, maybe for a year. I'm not doing that again. Although he, I think he did have his best every year under Benitez. I think he scored he? 37 goals. Yeah, but tough to inherit a team that's just won pretty much everything. Oh, and, as, and this is the larger point, James, about uh, this interside is that... Um, yes, they brought in a lot of new players that summer, but for the core group, it was their last chance. Um, yeah, they had been a part of this inside for for a long time. You mentioned this is the year five of them winning five Scudetti in a row, if you count the one that they were given after Calciopoli. And also for, for the owner, Massimo Moratti, this was fulfillment. This was the dream come true. He didn't feel like he had to do anything. He could walk away. Um, having been the sugar daddy and the finance the the team out of the family oil company's pocket, without there being any commercial operation there, so you know at the end of the <laughs> end of that season they've got a really old squad and loads of big losses and yeah Inter have been in the mess that they've been in ever since and they're only now just coming out of it. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. The Scudetto that year came and they'd won them before and it was close in the end with Roma. The Coppa Italia also won over Roma. Europe, though, I think, especially because it's Inter, Pazzi into the serial bottlers, a team that was drawn in a group with Barcelona, the ultimate side of that era and, and you know, still to this day one of the greatest. An Inter team who, when they went to Kiev in November, still hadn't won a Champions League game, were bottom of the group and in that game were five minutes from essentially losing that match and losing any chance of going through to the knockout stages. That whole road to the final, the idea that they would go and become European champions, I think in November, just seemed ludicrous. Yeah, without yeah. doubt. And yeah, even on the back of 
uh, of what we'd seen from them the year before that Mourinho didn't seem able to change the DNA of this of this club or the DNA that had yeah had materialized over the, since the 60s but that game you're absolutely right to bring it up because it was the key turning point um, so this is Kiev in November as we say game four game week four of the Champions League and Dinamo Kiev have taken the lead through worst of all Mourinho's old nemesis Shevchenko well and Inter's old nemesis and, uh, yeah former Milan man of course and then 86th minute with Inter really on the verge of disaster. Who should pop up with a goal but Diego Milito? And they follow that with Wesley Snyder. This is what Schneider would kind of establish a reputation for over the course of that season was... Yeah, Gab's right. He wasn't always in the team, but he would come up with big moments and he would score late. I seem to remember there was that crazy game they had against Siena where he came up with the winner late against Udinese as well. It was, that was very much kind of Wes's thing. And, you know, given how late he arrived, the derby essentially arrives the night before, plays an instrumental part in that. That was very much set the tone for his kind of inter career, if you like. Well, Inter qualified then for the knockout stages and in the round of 16... They meet some more old friends, Chelsea, for two memorable encounters. It is, of course, Jose Mourinho's first trip back to Stamford Bridge. And as I recall, this is the, the first time that we see the likes of Samuel Eto'o playing as a fullback to essentially shut down the Premier League side. Inter goes through, but what I also remember from these two ties was how much help they got from the officials. Two massive penalty shouts for Chelsea. The first leg, Walter Samuel on Kalou before... Cambiasso comes up with that brilliant goal. Second leg, when Drogba essentially gets wrestled to the ground again by Walter Samuel. You know who remembers that very well, too? Who? Mr. Carlo Ancelotti. Because he was managing Chelsea. Because he was managing Chelsea, because of the way, obviously, things ended at, at Chelsea. He's had so many big games, there's so many sort of regrets and stuff. But I think that that encounter still ranks in his, you know, probably top three he'd love to have back. Because remember, too, Ancelotti doesn't only pick fights against people, but... Mourinho, this is, and he and he's all friendly with Mourinho, and they text each other now. But at the time, Mourinho was giving everybody stick, especially anybody who had any association with Chelsea, not named Jose Mourinho, uh, or indeed Roman Abramovich, because you always have to kiss up to him. So there was a ton of needle there. People expected Ancelotti to kick on, and everything broke Inter's way in that game, and that that rankled. But it was a sign of things to come, because as we go through these rounds. Now, there is an argument, though, that God giveth and God taketh away. Because even as Inter were advancing mm -hmm. through the Champions League, they were absolutely collapsing in Serie A, which is one of those things that every time Mourinho goes and, like, mocks people, like, like say, Ancelotti, when he says, oh, he's won two Champions League titles. Oh, yeah, that's special. But several people have done that. But there's only one person who ever, you know, was 3-0 up at halftime and then finished 3-3. What do you mean mocks people for collapsing? You should probably remember the time his team were 11 points clear of Roma and then all of a sudden were two points back. Right. Because that 13-point swing was absolutely remarkable and there was a real sense around the club that, okay, Mourinho's going to run out of luck. He got past Chelsea. He'll get knocked down the quarterfinals, certainly in the semifinals, and yet they kept going. But there was a sense around that time that he was going to be handed out of Milan because 
you don't give up an 11-point lead. The, the, the press in particular... I mean, Mancini I had tried his best in... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in <laughs> his final season as well. That, but again, karma. <laughs> Who was he giving up the 11-point lead to? Mr. Claudio Ranieri at Roma. The same guy he had mocked because he couldn't speak English, because Ranieri was too old. What is he, 70 years old? All this stuff. Yeah, yeah we, we should say that Mourinho, in terms of his charisma... I suppose was a big part of this this two year spell in Italy. And while he's still seen as this, yeah, he's so revered over there. You know, and it, 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 it's but like what do you say he is because with the press in Italy seemed to be of all the countries he's worked in. I mean, certainly until he went to oh, Spain, yeah. that seemed to be the one place where his charm didn't well, work. He, he on the came press. to blows with uh, Andrea Ramazzotti at the Corriere dello Sport, um, and famously, I think the Sorry, can you explain why he came to blows with him? Mm -hmm. So at the time, in sort of the bowels of San Siro. It wasn't, it wasn't at San Siro, was it? Because they were all getting on the bus. Bergamo, was it? It was, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was somewhere else. But basically, like, the players would get out of the dressing room and go to the bus. And to avoid chaos, in addition to the, the sort of the mix zone area, Inter's press office basically allowed one guy to act as a pool reporter with a proviso that he would share the quotes with everybody else to go and stand next to the door of the bus and try to stop people and get quotes as they went on the bus rather than having a whole scrum of people. So they sent this guy into that Amatzot. He was this tall, goofy guy with glasses. He always wear these nice pinstripe suits because, <laughs> because you know why? It's because his dad is a tailor. That's why. Okay. Um, and then <laughs> the Inter-Milan press officer says, okay, you stand here, right? And what happens, Mourinho sees him, gets off the bus, and starts manhandling him out of the way. And again, I think Mourinho said, oh, yeah, I knew perfectly well he was authorized to be there, but, you know, I needed to shake things up, you know? And this is the kind of stuff Mourinho was doing. Right. You know, but I don't know how you feel about this, but I think from like a WWE <laughs> smack talk kind of way, my biggest regret is that Mourinho came to Serie A a little too late. You know, he came to Serie A at a point when like, you know, Moji was gone, Capello was gone, like all kind of like the psychos. Mazzoni, the whole war of words thing. And when he got there, you know, you had basically a bunch of relatively yeah, nice he was guys. Able to, like mispronounce Beretta's name, Banetta, which he'd later do with Tito Villanova and Pito yeah. Villanova. Yeah. But in terms of sound bites, these sound bites are still used all the time. Intellectual prostitution, uh, il rumore dei nemici. What else did he come? I mean, one of the big things he did was zero titoli. Mario Sconcerti, who's perhaps sort of the the, the dean of of Italian uh, journalists and, and my old boss. He was on Sky Italia, and they do these sort of the two ways after games with like the studio analysts. He's one of them. And Mourinho comes on, you know, it was after a poor performance or whatever. This might have been in his first season. Scorgetti asked him a question which Mourinho doesn't like. Io sou perché já me hanno detto que lei é um é, é seu amigo, não, não, não é um problema. Oh, eu sou um amigo de tudo. Sou não que amigo não, sua. Meu não é, seguramente. Não. Mourinho's like, oh, I know why you're criticizing me. And he says, why? Like, because you're Roberto Mancini's friend, are you? You're his big mate, so you're having a go at me. And Sconcetti says, no, I'm everybody's friend. Whereas, really, as a member of the media, he should have said, I'm nobody's friend. Every week, you had some sort of sideline issue. And again, it's obviously followed Mourinho throughout his career. I think it probably reached the nadir in terms of normal human behavior in Madrid. But you had this sense that, that Inter was just this tinderbox ready to explode. They 
draw CSKA in the quarterfinals, and that goes relatively well. I think 2-1-0 wins, and they're through. But next up, they're facing Barcelona again. First leg at San Siro, 31st of March of that year, and I don't think many people give the Nerazzurri much of a chance. Barcelona, the season before, had won six titoli, six trophies. Barcelona in the group stage, Inter hadn't managed to lay a glove on them. Two group games, one finishing nil-nil, the other 2-0 to the Catalans. But here comes something you've hinted at before, Gab, another crucial development, this time from the north. Eyjafjallajökull, a.k.a. the Icelandic Volcano. An eruption whose effects were huge, supposedly, according to Sam Allardyce, it was the ash cloud and its effect on the European oh, flight yeah. paths which prevented Blackburn Rovers from signing... Robert Lewandowski. Robert Lewandowski. Yeah. And how, you know, the world would have been a different place had that happened. Yeah. But it also meant with flights cancelled all over Europe at the end of that March... Bad news for Barcelona. Yeah, they had to get the bus. <laughs> so they're due to play at San Siro and flights are off and they wait and they wait and they wait because they're hoping it's going to clear. And eventually they have to make a call and the call is to get on a coach and make a 14-hour journey across the motorways of the south of France and then into Italy to Milan a short time before the game. Now, I can't remember what day they arrived. I think it was the day before the match. Yeah, it was obviously the worst possible preparation um i think there was also issues with the coach and, and the speed of travel I, there was a whole bunch of other things they could have done and again with hindsight if you talk to them i mean one obvious thing somebody actually offered like you know what i i have a hovercraft why don't you just shoot across from barcelona to genoa and then just hop on the train but again you know, the train you know but yeah the volcano ash was absolutely massive clearly played a part in this i remember it very well because i was on holiday in tenerife when it hit, you're and always on you're holiday. At a, you're I, at a volcanic I, island. I might. Well, <laughs> no, but you know what it meant was a ten-day holiday. We were in Tenerife for a whole month. You're kidding? No, I'm serious because it just hit just at the wrong time. There were so many people with cancelled flights. Our insurance was paying for it anyway. So yeah, we ended up staying there a very, very long time. But Inter one three one. There's still controversy around the goals. I think was it Milito's goal that mm. Pep would still say was offside. Mourinho would say well, that it wasn't. And somehow they come away with a 3-1 win. But I think there was still a sense among most people that when they go back the other way, shoes on the other foot, yeah. Barcelona are going to absolutely go and, and roast them. So it's only a week later that they go to Camp Nou. And I think everyone, I mean, the Camp Nou is buzzing because everyone thinks it's going to be the remontada. They're up against the greatest attacking side of that time. Probably one of the greatest attacking sides the world's ever seen. Xavi, Iniesta, Messi, classic Barcelona and star. Zlatan. And Slater. Yeah. And Plan B Slater. This is really the you can shove your possession stats up your ass kind but of But the game. numbers are extraordinary. But this then is their finest hour. This is probably Mourinho's finest hour in many ways. This is the defining match of that treble season. Well, because they go down to ten men early because of cheating uh Sergi Busquets. So this is the game of the Busquets peak. He goes down a little bit softly, contact with Thiago Motta, rolls around and you can see him just peeking through through his hands and Motta gets sent off and it becomes Inter at the Alamo essentially and I think one of the again we're talking about Mourinho being controversial how he communicated I think a, a few weeks beforehand they played Sampdoria the Manete they've gone down to 10 men then they've gone down to 9 men yep. and they managed to hold on and I think get a draw in that they game they got a clean sheet yeah and, and Mourinho famously made the uh, the handcuff gesture 
Yeah, they're trying to tie my hands. They're trying to stop us from winning. And they will say that the mentality that was kind of forged, it was already being forged, but from that game, when they went down to 10 at the Camp Nou, they knew they could get through it, essentially, because they could point to past precedent, well, recent past precedent. And, and this was the defining game of the we don't want the ball. Barcelona, in those 90 minutes, completed 555 passes Inter managed 67. Barcelona's possession <laughs> ranked... 50 from Julio Cesar just whacking the ball. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Inter's possession was a whopping 14%. And they ended up losing the game 1-0. But that, that was goal still was in the final 10 minutes. Yeah, that was uh, Pique, no? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Barcelona did have reasons to recriminate in that game too. But what I thought was interesting and what, what was pretty genius about that game was that Barcelona side was known for a ton of pressing, right? Whenever they lost the ball, which wasn't often because they had crazy possession stats, they'd always kind of converge. And if you didn't win the ball back within three seconds of the early version, you would foul. And so what Inter did in that game, and if you go back and watch this again, it's pretty remarkable. Ball to Sanetti, ball to Maicon. They wouldn't try to pass out and try to, you know, try to break the press or they wouldn't hit it into space for, was it Milito who was still on or yeah. whoever it was to, to run onto? No, they would run with the ball and wait for the foul. And time and again, boom, boom, boom. And Guardiola spoken about this, about his evolution, that he didn't realize that this was the plan because what would happen was Maicon would get fouled and then he'd sit on the floor and then he would get up slowly and then he would look around and every time they fouled, and I don't know what the final foul count is, but if you adjust foul count per minutes of possession, it's something like, I mean, they fouled like sort of every 40 seconds when they didn't have the ball. So it's completely, it's completely insane. It allowed Inter to take so much of the sting out of the game. And that's why even though people today complain that Guardiola's teams foul too much or whatever, if you notice, they do it in different areas, they do it in different situations. And Guardiola himself has said that this is sort of an evolution from it. It's something he picked up from that game that, you know, if the other team doesn't want the ball and they're happy with the result, you can't just keep applying this this tactic of I'll, I'll gamble and either win the ball or foul because it's not going to work. But it was it was a a shocking game to watch because I'm sure somebody is, I'm sure people have tried to play that kind of or take that kind of approach to a match before. But it was remarkable to see it in such stark contrast to Barcelona's approach in such a huge game and to be so successful and hard for Barcelona to answer. It was, and I feel a bit uncomfortable sticking up for Mourinho too much in this, but. It wasn't just eight men in the box. There was a method to what Inter did when they got the ball back. It wasn't just like, I mean, it certainly felt like they were hanging on by dear life, but there was a method to it, and it was very, very effective. And I think, you know, Mourinho should maybe get a tiny bit of credit for There's that. a great video on YouTube uh, where Mourinho actually breaks down, well, it breaks down voice. particularly the first leg, yeah, the, yeah, the coach's is. voice. And, I mean, it is very impressive. I remember after the game, the press was, was telling about using a word in Italy they were using the word gabbia the real translation is about like a jail like a jail to uh, to Messi because in the end we didn't play man to man but Zanetti Mota Cambiasso everybody was 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 responsible for any position that Messi could could go even if Messi sometimes was trying to go more to this side here he would always go, and then Schneider was going to close. So our defensive approach was based on this positional problem. 
Let's not kid ourselves. Do we play this game a hundred times? Sure. Barcelona win ninety eight or ninety nine. I'm not so sure. Times. You know, there are other games like say Roma's Romantada that I think Barcelona might win, but this one, I'm not sure how many answers they'd have. I think that Inter could go out there and do that again. That principle of if we don't have the ball, we can't make any mistakes. We can't get drawn out of position. They can't find a way through. They didn't luck their way through in that game. The season was unbelievably lucky, but I think that game they came up yeah, with an I answer. Think, was there? Uh, at the end of that game, was there a goal disallowed, which perhaps should not have been disallowed? Was it Bojan? Also, like immediately after the yeah, Bojan Kurcic, yeah. Immediately after uh, Motta was sent off, Julio Cesar made an uh, incredible save uh, from Messi. Um, but ultimately, this this game has been so defining in that rivalry between Mourinho and, and Guardiola, what one is and what one's not, and. One of the iconic Mourinho moments, running onto the pitch. The sprinklers turning Pointing to the Inter inter fans in the top end and the sprinklers coming on. After which comes the final against Bayern, who also were chasing a treble that year. But, mm, I mean, it was was a pretty clear-cut affair, this final. Even though Louis van Gaal felt differently about it. You know, he argued that they deserve to win, that they play better football, Mourinho's anti-football. Give it the whole sort of odious van Gaal thing that he does and 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 I will say this right if this had been sort of Barcelona van Hal from 1998 talking I would have said fair play to you in a bad Irish accent but this was Bayern version of van Hal who was sort of part of his like sort of devolution into United version of van Hal Mourinho gave it that spiel as he did when United beat Ajax in the Europa League final a couple of years ago which was Within a minute or two of the game starting, he knew they were going to win. Right. Well, the Ajax one was easier because he was coaching against Peter Ball. So <laughs> he probably knew that when the draw was made. A 2 0 victory, both goals from, of course, Il Principe Diego Milito. Second one's magnificent. Milito, una finta in area, ancora! El Principe Diego Milito, la firma lui, probabilmente questa finale, questa coppa, è 2 0, El Principe diventa re. His final stats are equally impressive that year. 30 goals for Milito in 52 games, four of which directly counted for the treble. I mean, effectively won the treble. We need to remind ourselves of what happened after the final, which I'm sure is a story I've told before. Well, topping the charts at that moment, as in to win there at the Bernabeu, is Se fosse per sempre, if it was forever, by Italian rock star and massive Inter fan, Biagio Antonacci who happened to be in the crowd at the Bernabeu. But it wasn't for Sempre, though, Gab, was it? It wasn't even for 30 minutes. No, and you know what? Sometimes in this profession, you get to go and you get to witness history in the making, not just on the pitch, but off it. And it'll be one of those defining moments that I will never forget. In in the bowels of, of the Bernabeu, there's the mix zone, and then there's sort of this this tunnel that like the select few who are allowed to park there kind of drive through to, to, to get out of the ground. And we've done most of our interviews. Most of the, the interplayers are on the bus, and you're watching through this kind of, kind of through, through almost like a chain link fence, but it was made of concrete, but with, with holes in it. And I can see Marco Materazzi, and and he's all sad and he's standing leaning against the wall next to the bus and there's a car that comes out of the side garage and starts making its way towards the entrance 
I heard the car screech to a halt, and then I saw the door fling open, and I see Jose Mourinho jump out of the car and run towards the interteam bus. In my mind, Mourinho, moments earlier, inside the car with Florentino Perez, you know, just screaming and saying, like, stop, you have to stop, you have to stop. But I think that's pretty much what happened. Okay, I didn't, I didn't personally witness that. But okay. he's got into Real Madrid's car moments yes. after winning because that's what he's going to do. He's going to leave the club and go to Real Madrid. As he's leaving the Bernabeu, he sees Matrix there in floods of and tears. He enters the Matrix, as we all do from time to time. He and says, he stop the car. Stops the car, runs over the little sidewalk where, where, where Matrix is. This is the bit you can see on YouTube. And he goes and he's sobbing. He is sobbing in the Matrix's arm. The Matrix who he sent, I think he came on for one minute. I mean, yeah, by, yeah. By, by, by this he point. Came on the 91st like, minute. Yes. The Matrix, by the way, the only player in history to have won a World Cup and a European Cup, despite never having represented his country at any youth level, which I think is pretty freaking cool. Right. Yeah. And the Matrix to this day is, I mean, I would say like, the Matrix and Duncan Castles are the two ultimate Mourinho loyalists who would give their organs for him. Um, and he just sobs. And at one point you see the Matrix sort of leaning away and Mourinho sort of gripping to him. And I have often debated. Mourinho knew there were cameras there and everybody was watching. You cynic. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, if he was faking it, if he was faking that, that that moment of climax with Michael Materazzi, you know, he is, he's Robert De Niro. So post 22nd of May 2010, what happened? Well, well James, the team? spell is broken insofar as whilst Mourinho and Matrix were in this kind of embrace, you also had Diego Melito saying, uh, in football, you never know. I've got a big offer. We'll see. Where did he go? <laughs> Well, he didn't, but at the same time, that did not go down particularly well yeah. with Inter, his owner. And this is another big mistake that Moratti makes after this, in that he looks at the squad, they're his heroes, they've made his dream come true. And even though they're all like in their mid-30s, he's like, you know what, I'm going to give you long contract extensions <laughs> on exorbitant money. But, uh, okay, you're my boys. It's amazing what you do when you're not playing, we're playing with somebody else's money. Well, right? let's, but it was his own money. It wasn't his own <laughs> money. It's, it's not money. It's his Moratti. money. It's the Moratti it's, money. That's his dad's money and it's his brother's money. And they put him in this little box uh, at Inter and kind of go play in that, 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 that sandbox where the sand is made of little broken down gold nuggets so you don't come over and help with the real family business. Well, that's one version of the Moratti story, but he, <laughs> one of the more simpatico city our owners, I would say. But, I mean, that, yes. is, that is a word yes. he uses himself. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a lovely guy, and he was he was chasing yes. a dream for so long. His dad, forty-five years, Angelo Moratti, was the uh, one that the, the famous Inter uh, European title at sixty-five, and. He'd spent all these years chasing it. He'd spent hundreds of... Nobody, nobody in world football had spent more money than Massimo Moratti trying to get the Nerazzurri back up there. Well, did you remember there's that viral kind of graphic going around oh, on, on yeah. Twitter about... The, the highest spending teams and Inter are just... <laughs> Inter until <laughs> you get the explosion of the Abu Dhabi log, and they, they're just so far, even above Abramovich, yeah, yeah. which is incredible. But he was very much the last of a, you know, a, a dying breed, a, a bygone era of it, it, Italian owners. Well, so. you just know that 
were Massimo Moratti still the president of Inter, Mario Icardi would still be captain <laughs> and still be at the club. Yeah, and Ricoba would be coach. Yeah, yeah. he sold up anyway in two. Ricoba would be playing. <laughs> he sold up in 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 2016. Mourinho dedicated the victory uh, as he departed uh, the Bernabeu to the Moratti family on field you had uh, Javier Zanetti in tears he finally retired in 2014 after amassing 858 appearances for Inter he's now vice president at the club yeah he tore his Achilles in that season under Mazzari and was out for a long time I blame Mazzari obviously yeah I'm with you on that but his comeback game was Moratti's final game which given he was his first signing with Lambaudi or Rambert, no, Sebastian Rambert, El Avioncito, <laughs> and soon thereafter, Roberto Carlos, wow. who, as we all know, after one year in Serie A, new manager comes in and says, yeah, I don't think this guy can quite cut it in Serie A and sells him. And that man, of course, was? Roy, Roy Hodgson. Hodgson. Although, Although, to, be, to be fair to Roy Hodgson. Yes, let's hear the excuses. And from that moment, from the moment <laughs> Roberto Carlos left, which is the day that Inter died, by the okay. way, so, um, Inter had about 89 different left-backs. Yes, that's true. But given your point earlier about whether Mourinho takes credit or not for assembling all these players, is it fair to suggest that transfer activity under Roy Hodgson was actually conducted by Roy Hodgson? I don't think so. Not the way Inter were run. Still Roy Hodgson truther. Uh, I, mean, I think yeah. if you ask Roy Hodgson, he yeah. will say that this was one of the one of the mistakes he made. I think he will own. He will uh, I, own. I've asked him mistake. about it, and he oh, denied, He said it wasn't his decision. Maybe he likes to lie to you and tell the truth to me. <laughs> That's very possible. <laughs> anyway, Roy, if you're listening, along. let us know. No, I'm. I because obviously. We have this great expression in, in Italy, which is um, success has many fathers, uh, failure is, is an orphan. Yeah. You know, so obviously no. Say in Italian. It's just a multi padri, fallimento e orfano. There's a better way of saying it. Yeah. But look, I mean. It's like the mother of idiots is always pregnant. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> no, like, now, returning to that inter, Julian Cesar takes the dream move to QPR, is now a TV pundit. Yeah, I saw him in Singapore. Oh, did you? Lovely man. Mm. Julio Cesar, who of course was married to, possibly still is married to. Ronaldo's ex. There you go. Are they still together? Milena... Susanna... Oh, sorry, Susanna Werner. No, it wasn't Susanna Werner. It was the one after. Or the one before. Who knows? (laughs) It's a very attractive blonde lady. It was Susanna Werner then. I think it was Susanna, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike on, I think might still be playing. As far away from Gareth Bale as possible. Mike oh, Arn, that's was, so harsh. That is harsh and mean and unnecessary. <laughs> Mike Arn, who was named for which Hollywood actor? Michael Douglas. Michael, Michael Douglas. Douglas. There you go. Uh, Walter Samuel. Do you know where he is now? You probably do. Yes, he's coaching in Argentina. Well, he's coaching Argentina. He's, he's part of Scaloni's. Uh, oh, yeah. He's part of the backroom staff. And which whose is amazing, though. And whose nickname was? The Wall. The Wall. The yeah. Wall. And he was the guy who always used to um, make the mate. And also oh, really? um, grill the steak, the asado for the cookouts. Okay. Yeah. Cambiasso went to Leicester, who, timing, were the only one of his clubs that he didn't win in the league title at because he went the wrong year. No, not just that. It's He went to Leicester and then he left. He wanted to stay and then they weren't sure and stuff. Ranieri was coming, blah, blah, blah. And then he ended up leaving, but it was very touch and go. Wesley Snyder retired without ever making that move to Man United, which is a shame because we'd, <laughs> we'd love to have seen that. And Samuel Eto'o... He retired Eto, and he got really big really quickly. Mm, happens. Samuel Eto'o did one more year with the Nerazzurri 
And then had a really busy time. He went to Anzimashkashkala. In Dagestan, but he didn't actually play in Dagestan because yeah. it was a war-torn area. So they all lived in Moscow. Um, they lived in Moscow. He used to fly down for games and fly straight back up. At the time, he was said to become, have become the world's highest paid player. But Lord knows how that all worked. From there, he actually went to Chelsea, Everton and Sampdoria. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, and there was that crazy story about him going to buy that haunted villa. Do you remember that? Which haunted villa? Um, While you look it up, can I just say Samuel Leto, 22 years as a professional, 13 clubs, four league titles, three Champions League titles, two Africa Cup of Nations, one gold medal. Always number one in the hearts of all right-minded and right-thinking, God-fearing people. Excellent. And finally, hung up his boots this August 2019. Luckily, never did buy the Villa Alta Chiara. Where was was that? It was in near Portofino. It once belonged to Lord Carnarvon. Who oh. was the financial back of Howard Carter yeah, and ever since the curse then. of Tutankhamen. The, yeah. Okay, let's so. not talk about it. This makes me uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank goodness he didn't buy that. As for Inter, the last Italian club to win the Champions League. Yeah, and the only one to do the treble, which is why they sing this song to Juventus fans these days. <laughs> How come you never win the Champions League? Into the last side from Italy to win that competition, possibly the next. Who knows? We shall see. But that brings us to the end of this special dedicated to one of the most remarkable Coppa di Campione or Champions League victories ever. Many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle. Do join us again for more uh, fun times. For now, though, from all of us here, it's a Vidocci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>